Lord, may our hearts be broken today over the brokenness in our heart, the lostness in our world, the selfishness in our souls. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would mourn and weep and wail today over sin. Not only the sin that we see out there, but the sin that is so prevalent in here, in the heart of every believer in this room, in the heart of every unbeliever in this room, in the heart of every person in this room, in the heart of those who have uh, watching via television or live stream, that God, you would you would grant us repentance today. In Jesus' name, God's people said. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open to Matthew 5. This is a continuous series that we're in on the Beatitudes. Now, the word Beatitude simply means an exalted happiness or a supreme blessedness. And the first paragraph or so of this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7, is known as the Beatitudes. Uh, we can think of this sermon as not only the Sermon on the Mount, but even Jesus' state of the heart address. You can think of it that way, where he is addressing the state of your heart and mine. Now, some read this, and I would agree, you look at it, and from, you know, you look at it and you say, man, isn't this a little over the top? Isn't, this, isn't Jesus just being a little intentionally just a, a little bit too severe. I mean, isn't this just overkill? Kind of like how you set your clock ahead about an hour so you won't be late for the day, you know? <laughs> Hit snooze 15 times, still be on time, you know, kind of thing. Isn't this just, isn't this overkill? Because some of these statements Jesus makes in this sermon are very strong. And some of them are just kind of strange. In fact, this, uh, these Beatitudes in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount has been referred to as everything from impractical, like it's impractical to live this way, to just impossible, like, well, we can't, nobody can live this way. It's been referred to as everything from the worst description of the American dream to the best definition of a disciple in all the New Testament. Jesus' words here have been described as everything from strong to strange. Matthew 5.4 is a strong yet strange verse. And what we see here in this verse is a beatitude that has been described as the blessing no one wants. <laughs> the unwanted blessing. So as we unpack the unwanted blessing today, I want to speak to you on the subject, happy are the unhappy. Now that statement in itself seems kind of strange. Strong on the one hand that the unhappy could be happy, that's pretty strong, but also strange on the other hand that the unhappy would be happy, right? I mean, it's strong and it's strange. And that, there's a statement like this all throughout Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, even in the Beatitudes, I, what I call the state, Jesus' state of the heart address. Anybody watch President Trump's State of the Union address? Anybody watch that? Hey, look, if you sat through the entire State of the Union address, listen. Don't get upset if I preach 10 minutes over today, okay? <laughs> All right? 
And I know, you know, when I, last week I know I preached over a little bit and you have margins in your Bible and you write those things down and you write down what I preach and when I preach it and what time I started and when I finished and you take a very detailed law and you've shown me this, I know this, you tell me this, but you need to keep in mind I've got margins in my Bible too. And I write down when you fall asleep and I put the verse and the point and the time when you go to sleep, I write it down in here. So you're not the only one with margins in your Bible. Well, in Trump's State of the Union address, there were some strong and some strange moments. One of the strange moments when Trump uh, died shaking Nancy Pelosi's hand and then Pelosi ripping up her, his speech. Listen, if I don't shake your hand today, don't tear the notes up, okay? Don't just rip the bulletin up if I don't shake your hand today. It's flu season, right? I'm going to shake your hand today. One pastor friend of mine watched the State of the Union address, and this is what he said after he watched it. He said half the president's crowd during his speech gave him that look, you know, that look. Some of them were talking disrespectfully. Uh, some of them had frowning faces. Some of the seats were just simply empty in the room. My pastor friend said, hey, that's my church every Sunday. Amen. <laughs> Amen, every Sunday. Well, one of those strange moments that happened in the State of the Union address, strong yet strange moments. If you watch it, I'm sure you can think of several. Well, when our eyes are fixed upon Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we begin to read the Beatitudes, we begin to see, hey man, what Jesus is saying. He's saying some strong statements. Some of the strongest statements ever, ever, ever uttered from the lips of of any human being ever to walk this earth, Jesus being 100% man and at the same time 100% God uttered the strongest and yet the strangest of sayings. And here's one, Matthew 5, 4. If you're there, say I'm there. Look at verse 4. Let's, I'm going to read it. You follow along. Blessed are those who mourn. That is a strange statement, isn't it? How many of you have been glad about grieving? Yeah, I didn't think so, right? Glad are the sad. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Happy are the unhappy. I mean, come, blessed are the mourn. That's, that's a strange statement. But look at the second part of the verse, and it's a very strong statement. For they shall be comforted. Man, isn't that good? That God wants to comfort us. That he is the God of all comfort. That's who he is. Strong yet strange sayings we find in this section of Scripture. So today, if we're going to sum up this message in a statement, you know on the back of your worship guide, you know what we're going to do. We're going to look at a takeaway, and then I'm going to make five observations out of this one verse. But the takeaway I've summed up this way today, Jesus wipes away every tear that weeps that is shed over sin. Jesus wipes away every tear that weeps over sin. Now, I understand that in Revelation 21, we are told that Jesus is going to wipe away every tear. I know that. But specifically, for the context of this text, we can say today with assurance that Jesus wipes away every tear that is wept, that is shed over sin. And so I want to make these five observations. I would pray that you'd follow along with us. Number one... God blesses those who weep over personal sin. God blesses those who take the time to let their hearts break over the brokenness of their own heart. The sin in your heart 
and the sin in my heart, when we weep and mourn and wail, and when we're broken because of our brokenness in our own heart, God blesses those who weep over sin. Now, the word here for bless means happy. More specifically, it is referring to a recipient who is privileged because of divine favor. It refers to a person that is experiencing a deep supernatural contentedness that is based upon the fact that one's life is right with God. Now, there is no perfect contentedness. There is no blessedness outside of a personal relationship with Jesus. There is none. Paul said, I am content with much. I'm content with not so much. Not because of the much or the not so much, but because of his relationship with Christ. In Christ as his personal Savior and Lord. So blessed are those who know the Lord and who are known by the Lord. This describes a person who is especially favored by God and in some sense is happy about that. Okay, that's what these, uh, this blessedness means. Now, we need to make the distinction between material blessing and spiritual blessing. All right, let's don't mistake one for the other. Does God bless us materially? Yes. Does God provide us with resources? Yes. Does every good gift come from God? Yes. But that is not the same as being spiritually blessed. We don't need to look at a wealthy person and say, oh, they're wealthy because God's hand of favor is on them and they're blessed spiritually. No. Could they be blessed spiritually? Sure. Does it have anything to do with their wealth? No. It has to do with their personal relationship with Christ. Take Jacob and Esau, two brothers. Grew up in the same home. Esau sold his birthright to his brother Jacob. And if you go to Genesis 36 and you begin to read, you will read about Esau's family, Esau's children, Esau's descendants and their wives and their children and their herds and their flocks and their land. And I mean, you talk about wealthy. Esau is one of the wealthiest men in all the Bible, according to Genesis chapter 36. What about Jacob? Jacob, what did he get? He got a tent. Esau had all the, Jacob got a tent. He lived a nomadic life in a tent. Now, the Bible says Isaac blessed Jacob. God said, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He preferred Jacob. And how do we know that? Here's how we know that. You know how God referred to himself to Moses when he was about to speak to the people of Israel? Here's what God said, I am the Lord your God. I am the Father. I am the Lord your God, the Father of Abraham. The God of your father, Isaac. The God of your father, who? Esau or Jacob? It could have been Esau if he had not sold his birthright. But he sold his birthright. So God says, I am the God of your father, Abraham. I'm the God of your father, Isaac. I'm the God of your father, Jacob. Let's not mistake material blessing for spiritual Blessing, And so, blessed are those who mourn. That's interesting, isn't it? The word for mourn here. There's nine Greek words in the New Testament for mourn. This is the most intense word for mourn. It means an inter or an inner agony, a deep inner sense of agony. It's the same Greek word used to describe Jacob's grief over his son Joseph when he thought Joseph was dead. The same grief that Jesus' disciple, the same word is used when Jesus' disciples were mourning the death of Christ before they knew he was resurrected. Same word. 
Same word used to describe in the tribulation period in Revelation 18, those uh, businessmen and women who were mourning and grieving over the fall of the world economy. Same word. It's an inner deep sense of agony. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, what we need to understand is God is the God of all comfort. Amen? And so much so that Jesus sent the comforter. He, he like sent the Holy Spirit to comfort you and to comfort me and for all who believe in him. God is the God of all comfort. I love Edgar Jackson's description of grief. Listen to this. Many of you can probably relate to some of these. So listen to this description of grief. Grief is a young widow trying to raise her three children alone. That was my mom. Grief is the man so filled with shocked uncertainty and confusion that he strikes out at the nearest person. Grief is, an, is a mother walking daily to a nearby cemetery to stand quietly and alone a few minutes before going about the task of the day. She knows that a part of her is in the cemetery, just as a part of her is in her daily work. Grief is silent, knife-like terror and sadness that comes a hundred times a day when you start to speak to someone who is no longer there. Grief is the emptiness that comes when you eat alone after eating with another for many years. Grief is teaching yourself to go to bed without saying goodnight to the one who has died. Grief is the helpless wishing that things were different when you know they are not and never will be again. Grief is a whole cluster of adjustments, apprehensions, uncertainties that strike life in its forward progress and make it difficult to redirect the energies of life. And quote. God cares about your grief. I'm telling you, listen, for those with physical ailments, cancer or some disease, listen, God cares about your suffering. For those of you who are bereaved today, I'm, listen, who have experienced the loss of a loved one, listen, God cares about your separation today. For, for those of you who are depressed, God cares about your sadness. For those of you who, who have been abandoned, God cares about your sorrows. Caregivers in the room, caregivers watching via live stream or on TV, listen, God cares about you hurting with the hurting. He cares about you. Foster parents, adoptive parents, God cares about you opening your hearts and your homes to the hurting. God cares about your hurts and he cares about my hurts. He cares for you. He encourages you to come to him, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and he'll give you rest. He is the God of all comfort. Do not miss that. Specifically, however, in this text, in its context, Jesus is specifically referring to those who mourn and weep and wail over sin. How do we know that? Look at verse 3. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who are spiritually bankrupt before God, who recognize their sinfulness in the light of God's holiness, and they're broken by that sin. And they approach God in a very humble, 
broken way. And God says those who weep over that sin that's been revealed, they shall be comforted. So God blesses those who weep and mourn over sin. Paul described it this way. There is a godly grief. There's a godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation. (laughs) Amen? There is a godly grief that that, that produces within us this, this gift of repentance from God that we can turn from our sin and put our faith totally in Christ and be saved. And Paul says then there's a worldly grief that produces death. Okay? So Paul talks about this very grief in in, in the letter to the Corinthian church. He, He talks about that grief. So let me ask you, when was the last time you wept over your sin, your personal sin? What personal sin have you yet to weep over? Now, I know we're really good at pointing out the sin in others, right? Like the Pharisee in the temple that day. God, thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. Oh, God, thank you that I'm not like him. We're good at that. Uh, One pastor said it like this. If you're like me, you're good at accusing others and especially good at excusing yourself. Right? That's our heart. That's who we are in our sin. King David, when confronted by Nathan, the prophet, when he was confronted, he owned his sin. And the same thing happens to us. When we're confronted not by Nathan, but by the, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, we also should be like David and confess it. Now, David, didn't, in Psalm 51, David didn't say, have mercy on them, O God. Have mercy on that tax collector over there, O God. Have mercy on him. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out his transgression. Wash him thoroughly from his sin uh, for, and cleanse him from his sin. For he knows that his transgression is his sin is ever before him against you and you only has he sinned. That's not what David does. David says, Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me for, I, for you and you alone have and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight against you only. For I know my transgression is ever before me. David took ownership of that personal sin in his heart and in his life. And when he mourned and wept over his sin, let me tell you something. God blessed him. God blesses those who mourn over sin. And we need to know something about sin. Sin is not done with you when you're done with it. Sin is looking not to just take a corner of your soul or a corner of your life or a corner of your family. Sin is looking to destroy and kill all of your life, your entire life. So don't manage sin, don't entertain sin, confess it, kill it, hand it over to Jesus. Lay it down at his feet. Now some sins we commit are by omission or by commission. We commit them, but some of them we omit, we ignore to do what God has called us to do. That too is sin, right? And when I focus on things that I have no control over, it drives me nuts. And, and I'm tempted to do it all the time. I'm tempted to focus on those things I have no control over. Who's going to be here on Sunday? I have no control over that. I have no control over how many gospel conversations you're going to have. I have no control over if you're discipling somebody or being discipled. I have no control over where you're serving and and where you're sharing. and I have no control over that. And I want to focus more on that rather than focus on where I need to serve and where I need to share and where I need to have these conversations and where I need to fast and pray. And that's just our natural bent. 
is to ignore those things that God has called us to do. As believers, I really don't understand why we think that when we obey the Great Commission, we need to be recognized. We need to get a trophy or something. Now, it drives me nuts when I see uh, these athletes who, like, for example, in football, you got a defense player that makes a tackle. They make a tackle. And they get up and do a celebratory dance for making a tackle. That's your job, to make the tackle. How many of you at work? You're at work and you complete a task and you take your laptop and you spike it and do a jig around it. How many of you do that? How many of you dance celebratory when you complete a task at work? How many of you mom and dad when you cook breakfast in the morning take a pancake and slam it on the ground and dance around it because you made breakfast? No, that's your job. Just do your job. Our job is to obey the Great Commission. That's our job. And the point is, we think of, man, I'm making such a sacrifice when I obey the Great Commission. No, when you don't obey the Great Commission, you're committing a grave sin. That's the reality. It's not that we're sacrificing when we do it. We're sinning when we don't. And the Lord says, look, if you'll mourn and weep over these sins, if you'll mourn and weep, blessed are those who do this. Blessed are those, Jesus says, who mourn and weep over sin. David Livingston said it this way, if a commission by an earthly king is an honor, like if it's an honor to be commissioned by an earthly king, then how can a commission by the king of kings be considered a sacrifice? I know you have sin you need to confess because I do too. We have sin we need to mourn and weep and well over. Personal sin. Number two, God blesses those who weep over public sin. Not only do we see sin in our hearts, in here we see sin out there. Lostness, brokenness, it's all around us. You know, we see sin everywhere, therefore we don't see sin anywhere. We see sin nowhere because it's all over the place. Just as it was in Jonah's day and Noah's day, so it is in our day as the Lord has said. Think about Jonah's day. Man, the whole city of Nineveh had, had sinned. In fact, God said he was going to destroy the whole city of Nineveh. Not 99% of them. The whole, he said Nineveh will be overturned in 40 days. He didn't say, well, you know, North Nineveh is going to be destroyed in 40 days. Or South Nineveh is going to be destroyed in 40 days. Or East or West. He said the entire city is going to be destroyed. And so the people believed God. They heard Jonah. They believed God and they... they, they, they they began to repent. And the king even asked the question, who knows if God will relent? I tell you who knew, Jonah knew. That's why he didn't want to go. Because he knew if they repented of their sin that God was going to comfort them. God was going to heal them. God was going to rescue them and deliver them and save them. And he knew that, so he didn't want to go. And we're so much like Jonah. I, in my heart, am so much like Jonah. There's a part of me that says if somebody is acting a fool and sinning out there, they get what they deserve, right? A part of me wants to say that. I can remember one of the first messages I preached here as your pastor was in the book of Romans and us preaching on the sin of homosexuality was part of that. And after the message, one of our church members came up to me and said, Pastor, get them gays. Well, look, that is sin. That is outright blatant sin. That is not the attitude, God. God does not desire to wipe sinners off the earth. God desires to wipe away every sin in the heart of every sinner. He desires to wipe away every tear that is shed in repentance from a sinner's eye. That is God's desire. 
Far be it from us to be like Jonah and get angry at God because God is not being angry enough at sin to just wipe all sinners off the earth. That makes no sense. That means he'd have to wipe you and me off the earth. Aren't you glad he hasn't? Aren't you glad he's been gracious and merciful? So when we see public sin, we need to be broken over it. Yes, there is a righteous anger. Sure there is. But man, the Lord is saying, blessed are those who mourn, who weep and well over the brokenness and lostness around us, man. We're surrounded by sin. Surrounded by... David captured that in Psalm 32. And in many of his psalms, he talked about the brokenness and the sin that's ever before him. All around him. And I know, listen, I understand there's a time to speak up and there's a time to be silent. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. I know that. Ecclesiastes tells us that. I know there's a time to be silent. Even Will Rogers said, never miss a good chance to just shut up. Right? (laughs) I know that. There's a time for everything under the sun. But there's a time to speak up. There's a time in public for you and I to live as one who was broken over sin. How do I do that? How do I, when I leave here today and I see all the sin around me in my neighborhood, in my family, at work, at school, how am I to respond? Here's how you're to respond. Speak the truth in love, right? Tell people the truth, but do it in love. Show mutual respect. Even if they don't agree with you, even if they don't look like you, show mutual respect. And be kind. Be nice to people. You're not going to lay on your deathbed and say, oh man, I regret so much that I wasn't meaner to that person. You're not going to regret that. You're going to regret that you weren't nice. Not that you weren't meaner, but that you weren't nicer. So be kind. Be nice. Honor authority. Defend the vulnerable. Have gospel conversations. Pray without ceasing. Live like Jacob, a sojourner, in this land. We have to remember that our example, our Savior, our Lord is Jesus, right? What did Jesus do over Jerusalem? He wept over Jerusalem, not because Jesus was a sinner, but because of the sinfulness and lostness and brokenness. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. When's the last time we wept over our Jerusalem and the sin that's all around us? How do we know it's around us? Paul said this in Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. If all people everywhere must repent, that means all people everywhere are sinners. So you cannot share Jesus with the wrong person. It's impossible to share him as often as you can. Number three, God blesses those who weep over private sin. So there's a a personal sin in my heart and life, there's, there's public sin that's all around us and corporate sin that even we might be a part of. And then there's what we might think of as private sin. Now, Israel, their first couple of kings, King Saul, King David, both were sinners, both sinned. Uh, they weren't sinners because they sinned. They sinned because that's who they were sinners, just like you and just like me. That's who we are. We have received this sinful nature from Adam. And then at some point in life, we choose to sin. So we're sinners by nature and sinners by choice. And so at some point in time, you and I have done what James calls uh, this friendship with the world is enmity with God. 
He says it that way. And again, he says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Sin on the inside. Sin on the outside. You double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Weep over your sin. Personal and private sin. Weep over that sin. See, our primary goal is not to be right, right? Our primary goal is to get right with God and show others how they can get right with God. That's our primary goal. Your primary goal is not to win. I want to win. I want to win. Your primary goal is to be win some. So you might win some to Christ. You say, well, Pastor, you just don't understand what people are saying about me, what they've tweeted about me, what they posted about me. They're saying and uttering all kinds of evil against me. And I'm not arguing with you. They very well may be doing that. True. But here's what the gospel says. When we take that posture and we take that attitude of, man, these people are saying things that are untrue, that they're saying things and all kind of evil against me, and they're saying all kind of things about me. Here's what the gospel says. That the best we offer is filthy rags. Let me break that down for you. Don't worry about what people are saying about you, how ugly it is, how evil it is. Because the truth is, the truth about you is far worse than what anybody could ever say. That's what the gospel says. You are wretched, unrighteous, however. That's why it's good news, folks. The good news is that Jesus has substituted himself in your place he died instead of you he died in your place to bring you grace and mercy and he laid down his life for you so when we will mourn over sin be it public private or personal sin we will be blessed blessed are those who mourn here's the second part of this verse I want to make two observations about it number one or number four rather God comforts through the power of the gospel here's where our comfort comes from Pastor, you just told me I was worthless. Well, I didn't say that. The gospel says that. But here's how you can be comforted, okay? Here's how you can be comforted. Here's where the gospel comforts you and comforts me. It is the power of the gospel. There's not a period after those who mourn. There is a comma. Amen? (laughs) Keep reading. So here's the good news. For they shall be comforted. Now, who is they? Well, the they here is emphatic. It is they and they alone. It's not they and some other folks. It's they. Well, who are they? Well, look at this, second part of verse 4. The they here in the second part of verse 4 are the those there in the first part of verse 4. It's the same people. Blessed are those who mourn, those who are broken, those who repent, because guess what? They shall be comforted. Not somebody else, not another group, but they shall be comforted. The only way to find comfort is to be forgiven of your sin. That's the only way to find comfort is to be forgiven. And only those who find comfort are those who mourn over sin. Repentance and belief are essential for you to be saved. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Turn from sin and believe and place your faith in Christ. That is essential for you to be comforted. Psalm 32.1 David said it this way, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Those are the ones who are blessed, the forgiven, and those whose sins are covered. Now, tonight we're going to do the Lord's Supper at 5 p.m. up at the Point Church. Now, why are we doing the Lord's Supper? Right? I mean, how many of you have ever participated in the Lord's Supper at some point in your lifetime? You've done it. Okay. So why do we keep doing it? Why do we gather and keep doing it? Why do we keep doing it? Well, say, well the Lord told us to do this in remembrance of him. Correct. That's, that's why we do it, to be obedient. Sure. Absolutely. And here's the good news about why we keep doing it. I love that. If you'll stop and think about this tonight, I pray this will be just the heartbeat of your heart tonight as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Listen, we need to never forget. We need to remember and never forget that God loves to forgive more than we love to sin. God loves to forgive more than we love to sin. His grace is greater than our sin. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. I love this quote. The doctrine of atonement is very simple. It just consists in the substitution of Christ in the place of the sinner. Christ being treated as if he were the sinner, and then the sinner being treated as if he were the righteous one. He went on to say this. It is of Christ I love to speak, of Christ who loved and lived and died, the substitute of sinners, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. George Whitfield said it this way, if Jesus Christ be not the very God, I would never preach the gospel of Christ again. For it would not be a gospel, it would only be a system of moral ethics, end quote. See, moralism says this, moralism says, hey, God will treasure you if you change, if you do this and do that, and if you change your behavior, then God will treasure you. That's what moralism says, but the gospel says God will change you because he treasures you. That's good news, church. Here's how Paul described the gospel. I would remind you of the gospel, the good news I preached to you, which you received. I delivered to you what I also received. So Paul said, this isn't just for you, this is for me. This is for all of us. It says, Christ died for our sin in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the gospel. Amen. Comfort is found in the power of the gospel. Uh, in San Francisco, we were there a couple weeks ago, and they have this, uh, this interesting profession there that I don't know if we have so much of it here but we saw this lady at one point saw the several of these walking around but one lady had a harness on and she had 10 leashes and 10 dogs she was a dog walker and she had five on this side and five on that side and they didn't bark at each other they weren't bothering each other and she was a dog walker that's what she, she does. That's a profession of a lot of people do that in San Francisco. And there's a couple of reasons why. Number one, the population of dogs. They have more dogs in San Francisco, our tour guide told us, than they have children in San Francisco. It's an overpopulation of pets. And the second reason is they don't have any yards. They have no yard. They are apartment on top of apartment on top of apartment. So when you go to work, you hire a dog walker to come in and walk the dog. And some of them make over $100,000 a year walking a dog. I walk my dog and nobody pays me. <laughs> In fact, I pay to walk my own dog. And the dog hates me. <laughs> hates me. Well, in New York, they have a similar problem. They have millions of pets, right? And if a pet dies, there's nowhere to bury They don't have a pet cemetery in New York. There's nowhere to bury them. Just concrete everywhere. 
So the city said, hey, we'll, we'll, for $50, we'll come and get your deceased pet and we'll discard him or her. Well, this lady had a bright idea. She said, well, I can save folks some money, offer a service. So she put an ad in the paper, for $25, I'll come get your pet when it dies and I'll discard it. And so what she would do, she would go to Salvation Army, buy a suitcase when she got a call that a pet had died and she'd go to that person's place and get the pet put it in the suitcase and she'd go to the subway and she'd put that suitcase down and she'd act like she wasn't looking at it and inevitably a thief would come by and grab it and run off with it and she'd go wait stop thief right and they'd run off with it and when we think about you know we see this word blessed and we think of happiness and we think of comfort And we're all reaching for that. We're all reaching to find comfort here and comfort there. And we want to find happiness here, be blessed over here. And we're reaching for anything that might bring us that. And uh, sometimes when we reach for that particular thing we know is going to bring us happiness and we open it, not so much, right? So the gospel, the power of the gospel is what provides comfort that surpasses all understanding. It's the comfort and peace that is supernatural, not natural, not temporary. I'm talking about eternal. I'm not talking about happy that your team won the game or happy that you made an A on that test when you have another one coming up right behind it. I'm not talking about that temporal happiness. I'm talking about eternal blessedness, comfort, and no matter what comes your way. God comforts, and he does it through the gospel, through the power of the gospel. Number five, God comforts through the presence of the Spirit, right? The presence of the Holy Spirit. You need to know that when you trust Christ as your Savior, upon conversion, the Holy Spirit immediately takes up residence in your heart and life. How do we know that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our heart and life? Well, number one, Jesus said... If I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Number two, in Acts 2, we see at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. Then we read in Ephesians and other letters that we are marked, we are sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, upon conversion. That Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. He promised to do so. He has done so. And he takes up residence in every believer. And the Holy Spirit comforts us. And he, he, he guides us. And he convicts us. And he encourages us. And he gives us what to say when we don't know what to pray. And he gives us what to say when we don't know what to say to that person when we share the gospel with him. And he's comforting us in all of our bad times and good times. And all the time he's comforting us. You say, well, Pastor, I how do I know that's the truth? Because I'm, I'm a believer and I'm just not very happy right now. Well, God's goodness is not based upon our happiness. Amen? It's based upon the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, how do we know the Holy Spirit represents Jesus? Well, if you go to Hebrews chapter 1, you can read how the Son, God the Son, is the exact representation of God the Father. And so we can know God the Holy Spirit is the exact representation of God the Son. It is Christ in us, our hope of glory for those who, who believe. One said it like this, the Holy Spirit is the gift of the risen Christ, his anointing filling, his empowering work, is a baptism of love that gives power to make Jesus real to you and known to others. God comforts us through the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power 
of the gospel. Now, there's this folklore story, and I want you to hear me. This is a story, okay? It's, it's from the Middle Ages, and it just, it just reiterates that Jesus wipes away every tear that weeps over sin. And so this lady, Middle Ages folklore story in the Middle Ages, this lady uh, was kicked out of heaven, expelled from heaven, and she was told, hey, if you, you'll be readmitted if you can bring back the one gift God values the most. So she went on this hunt to find this gift. She brought back blood from a, a patriot. Blood drops from drops of blood from a patriot. She brought back coins from a destitute widow. She brought back the dust from the feet of missionaries who had gone to the ends of the earth taking the gospel. She brought back rem, remnants of, of a Bible that, that an eminent preacher preached from. And she brought all these things back and many more like it. And she was turned away every time. Then she went to this... This fountain and saw this little boy drinking some water out of the fountain and she saw this man on horseback stop and he dismounted and he walked over to, to get a drink and as he looked he saw the little boy and he had thoughts of his childhood and then he looked into that water and as he looked into that water he saw his own reflection, his hardened face and all of a sudden he was overcome by the sin in his own heart the sin in his own life. And in that moment, he began to weep tears of repentance. And that lady took one of those tears and took it to heaven. And heaven just rejoiced over that one sinner who repented over rather than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance as he wept over his own sin. Revelation 21.4 reads this way. Jesus, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now for Jesus to wipe away tears, they're going to have to be tears, right? So what kind of tears are they going to be? I can just imagine, can't you imagine if you're a believer in the room and there's no unconfessed sin in your heart that you're aware of? I mean, you, as far as you know, you've confessed all the sin in your heart, Right? Can you imagine on that day when you enter that place called glory and there's no mourning, there's nothing unclean, there's no crying, there's no pain, all the former things have passed away. Can't you imagine when you come face to face with the risen Savior? Oh, can't you imagine when you look into the eyes of Jesus, the compassionate eyes of our Lord? Oh, can't you imagine when you come face to face with the one who died for you, who was buried and raised to life? Oh, can't you imagine when you stand before him on that glorious day, the tears of joy that will stream down your face and the Lord Jesus will wipe away every tear of joy that you're shedding so that you can see him even more in his glory. Oh church, what a day that will be when we see the Lord Jesus as heaven rejoices over one sinner who comes to repentance. I pray today if you don't know Jesus, it's time to. It's time for you to stand up and step out and say, hey, God, the Holy Spirit has shown me my sin today and I confess it before uh, the Lord Almighty. I confess it to Jesus and I need to be saved today. We would love to celebrate with you on that decision. We're going to stand up in a moment and you're going to come and you're going to confess your sin uh, to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit and you're going to be saved today. We want to help. We'll have a conversation with you about that. You got any questions about that? We'd love to talk with you about it. You just come. You just stand up in a 
a moment and come. We're going to have some pastors down front to receive you. We're going to have folks here to talk to you about baptism, if that's what you're interested in, or maybe joining this church, or maybe a mission that God has laid on your heart to do, or a ministry that God has, has put on your heart to do. Hey, we'd love to talk with you about any decision you'd like to make, and we expect these steps to be full of people repenting of sin. You've got sin, and I've got sin, and we've all got sin. In our life, maybe God has revealed to you a sin that has been suppressed and hidden and today it's been revealed and you need to come confess that. Not to me, not to anybody else in this room, but to come forward and get along with the Lord and confess it to Him. Maybe there's a sin you know that is unconfessed and today you need to come and confess that. Listen, God's going to bless you when you weep, mourn, and well over sin. He'll wipe away every tear of repentance.